0: We're in John chapter 2, so the Gospel of John chapter 2, we do expository preaching where we pick a book of the Bible and we go through it a verse at a time, and that's where we are with John, and it's been a rewarding study. Uh, I would say in a world where we have so many uncertainties and uh, not being sure of things, uh, to uh, have a surety, uh, to go and study our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who He is, John says he wrote this so that we might believe, and that if we do believe, that our faith would be strengthened. And so uh, I hope we take that to heart as we go through this book, that it should be strengthening in our faith. And if you don't have faith, that it should be giving you a reason to have faith in Jesus Christ, that he is the Savior. So far in in the Gospel of John, we've had the last Old Testament prophet. And literally, we don't have to wonder who it was. Jesus tells us who it was. It was John the Baptist. So the last Old Testament prophet... He has preached and told us that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah. We don't have to wonder. He's going to be kind of representing all the Old Testament. He says, here he is, the Lamb of God. All that stuff that we did in the Old Testament, all those sacrifices, all those rehearsals, it all comes to this. This is the Lamb. This is the woman that points to it. It is him. Uh, then Jesus begins his ministry in Chapter One by calling his disciples. He uses various ways he He does it through testimony. We have several you know, we have Peter that is called by his brother Andrew. Uh, James is called by his brother John, and so we have that personal eyewitness testimony that goes and says, hey, we have found him, who is the Christ. We have direct call where Jesus goes right up to him and calls them, you know, seeks them out and finds them and calls them. And then we have reasoning from scripture where they go and they're like, this is the one of the Old Testaments and the prophets that told us about. And they use scriptures to reason with him, to show him. And then Jesus confirms it to him with miracles, like a personal miracle, like where he really shows them something about themselves um, that gives them that, that that confidence to say this is Messiah and that they follow in with him. And so uh, we've seen that. So in chapter 2 so far, we've traveled with Jesus to a wedding. So it's kind of a nice place to go and start, you know, to start off with a party. And we are on the inside group that knows about a miracle. This isn't something he did big in public. He did it with the servants. It was disciples' knowledge, you know, and the servant gives it to the governor of the feast, unaware, you know, and he's like, calls the groom up, this is the best wine ever! You know, most people use the trick, we're getting people drunk a little bit, you know, get them drinking something dull, their senses, and then you bring out the worst wine, it's like, no, you've even brought out the best wine, and so we're in on that little miracle that happens, not even little, He makes like 56 gallons of it for this feast, and now we're joining him on a trip, we're the group. It's going to Capernaum and then ultimately to Jerusalem. A lot of people argue that John's just pulled stuff randomly and stuck it in. I think it's chronological. Maybe I'll change my mind as we go further. But I think he's specifically pulling out certain incidences. But I think he's going in a logical, logical way. So we're verse 12. So after the wedding, after this he went down to Capernaum. He and his mother and his brethren and his disciples, and they continued there not many days. First, I just say, is this always how you imagined it? Is this the group or the entourage you thought was traveling around? A little different than I thought. He has more with him. He's got his mother with him. I never really thought about this mother Mary traveling with him at least some of the time, but he says it there. Uh, and notice that John stays consistent, as we uh, talked about with the feast at the wedding, that he never calls Mary. We'll see through the Gospel of John he never calls her Mary because he has that relationship where he is in charge of caring for her, And so it's a little different, you know, it's not like, oh, she's Mary, just an acquaintance, but she's the mother of the Savior, you know, and yet she's the responsibility of him. He can't call her mother, he can't call her Mary, that's a little too formal, so he just calls her Jesus' mother, you know, the mother of our Savior. And so he does that again, after this he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother, and so he's able to do that, he finds a way. But not only her, his mother and his brethren. Now, he's not talking about you know, Brother Carl and Brother Dave. You know, he's talking about his brothers and sisters, his blood brother. Yeah, so Jesus has brothers and sisters. And again, I've mentioned this lightly before, and we'll probably mention it again, that whenever there's a heresy that's going to come forth in the world, and there are a lot of heresies that come forth in the Lord, Satan does a good job of trying to attack everything in Scripture or pervert it. If he can't just outright attack it, he'll put a slant on it, put a version on it. And we know that there are some that esteem Mary, probably you know, to the point of Godhood. They call her the mother of God, and they bring all these things. They'll pray to her. They do all this. That's not what God ever intended. You know, and they call her the holy virgin, like she's always a chaste virgin. No, Jesus had brothers and sisters. She had other children outside of her pregnancy with Jesus. And so he's kind of showing us that. You know, if you read and study the scriptures, you'll see these things. And so Jesus does have brothers and sisters, and they traveled with him all the time. Probably not. It's probably more like we originally imagined, you know, kind of Jesus and the disciples going around. But I think this is a specific trip. He's starting his ministry, and he's going to set up a base here at Capernaum. That's kind of like the their base that they work out of. So he, as the, the oldest son, because you will notice that Joseph is absent outside of the Christmas story. We don't have any record of him. And so out of the silence, we imagine that something happened where he died. And so that puts a responsibility on the oldest son, so that would have been Jesus. And so uh, he's probably moving her to a new place where he could better care for her, and he sets up an operation there. Uh, we know he has at least four brothers. And there's James and Joseph, and then there's Simon, and then his brother Judas. Let's look at that. Look at uh, Matthew chapter 13. It's always good to see it in Scripture for yourself. Matthew 13. I'm going to back up a little bit and go to verse 53. So Matthew 13, verse 53, it says, And when it came to pass, that when Jesus finished these parables, he departed thence. And when he was coming to his own country, he taught them in their synagogue, insomuch that they were astonished, and said, Whence has this man this wisdom and these mighty works? Because he's in his own hometown. You know, he's going back to there, and so verse 55 Is not this the carpenter's son? They knew what house he lived at. They knew who his stepfather was, you know, Joseph. Is not his mother called Mary? Yeah, they got the right house. Yeah, you have Joseph who's married to Mary, the carpenter. And his brethren, same word here. It means, I think it's Adelphus. It means uh, out of the same womb. His his brethren have the same mother, uh, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. So they they list four of the brothers. And then it goes on in verse 56, and his sister's, Are they not all with us? Uh, Whence hath this man all these things? And so they list, you know, the hometown people that are straight for us. Oh, yeah, we know Jesus. We know his four brothers, and we know he has sisters, you know, that they're in the town. And so, yeah, Jesus had brothers and sisters. Sadly, none of them believed until after the resurrection. And we don't know if all of them believed. I'm assuming, I'm hoping that they all did. James, the first one that's mentioned, so he must have been the second born, I'm guessing. He becomes the leader of the church of Jerusalem. I mean, after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, he gets put in charge. That's how much the disciples and all of them, you will uh, look up to him and, and think about his wisdom. Uh, what would it been like to grow up with Jesus as an older brother? Again, I'm often captivated by the thought of what were the dinner conversations like when they were growing up? What was it like when they would open the scriptures and talk and then Jesus would put his input in? I don't know, but it must have been something. James not only becomes the leader of the church of Jerusalem, but he also writes the book of James. And so we have the book of James that was written by Jesus' half-brother. And then he has a brother named Judas who shockingly, no, not shockingly, starts going by Jude. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, Judas kind of spoiled the name there, didn't it? Because uh, Judas was a hero in Israel. You know, to, to have Judas was named after Judas Maccabees. Uh, they called him the hammer. And he's the one who helped do the revolt against Antiochus Epiphanes in the silent years in the scriptures. And so he was a local hero. And so a lot of people were named Judas because that was a hero. And people wanted that emulated and re- represented in their children. We have the book of Jude that he wrote. And the thing that's interesting about the book of Jude is that he includes a lot of things that we don't get anywhere else in Scripture. So that's what makes me wonder about those dinnertime conversations that Jude was uh, focusing in on. You know, so he gives us some things there. They made their home base here at Capernaum. They probably stayed there. Maybe the brothers and sisters and Mary stayed behind. And the disciples uh, traveled with him. Verse 13, and the Jews Passover was at hand. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And so we have a transition verse. That's why I think it's chronological. Uh, they go from the wedding to Capernaum. They stay there a few days. You know, then they're going up to Passover there at Jerusalem. John labels it for us, and that sparks a lot of debate. He tells us there in verse 13, and the Jews' Passover was at hand. He tells us that it's a Jewish holiday. And that's what then sparks it. Well, why does he say it that way? Why didn't he just say Passover? You know, it's not like other cultures have Passover. The Jews have Passover. Some see some insight in it, like it's kind of a charge in that this has become the Jewish Passover and not the Lord's Passover, because they've just inserted so much in it that they've taken it away. So maybe there's a little indictment there on the community that Passover has become something, we would use the word commercialized, you know, has come so transformed and changed that it barely represents what it originally stood for, you know, now it's just holiday, we all get together and we eat and we do whatever, and and do they go through the meal and do all that or not? You know, maybe, maybe not, you know, do they really understand it? You know, so, so he calls it the Jewish Passover, maybe. And maybe it's also just because he knows he's going to have a lot of Gentile readers, And he's kind of catching us up to speed. Oh, here's one of the holidays that the Jews have to celebrate. It's called Passover. Which camp am I in? Probably a little both. I'm glad that John puts it in here to remind us of these things because I don't think, oh, it's it's Passover season except for our Lord was crucified and rose during that time or we would probably just skip right past it like the Feast of Booths and the Feast of uh, Bread and all these other things of Pentecost. we, We don't know as much about them except for where Christ points these things out to us. Uh, We get some insight. So I think John's helping us out, you know, kind of pointing it to us. And maybe there's a little bit of indictment that it's really traveled and changed from the way it was supposed to be because we do have some interesting events that then uh, follow shortly thereafter. That's verse 14. It says, so they get to Jerusalem and they found in the temple those that sowed oxen and sheep and doves and the changers of money sitting. So they get there and they notice that some stuff's going on. And I think the key words are right there at the very beginning, and found in the temple those that sold the oxen, that it was actually in the temple, that they were doing it inside the premises. Now, people needed this. It was, it was a needed service, and there's a lot of argument about you know, why the coin changing, I most of the way I've always kind of always thought about it, is that you had people coming from the outer regions and if you're using Roman coins or if you're using whatever local currency would have been you know they had pagan symbols on it they had you know the inscription of Caesar on it you know they had his head and the Jews were strictly you know obedient to the second commandment not making any graven image of you know, and not bowing down to him. and so they wouldn't want that and so these guys used a Like the currency there to trade it into temple coins, you know, that then could be used. Some argue that they only accepted, you know, higher weight coins that had more gold value and maybe a little bit of both. But there there was currency trade. If you're traveling to another country, if you're coming from far away, you know, you you have to have their currency. And so there's that that's going on. And then there's also, it's like you're traveling. Like this was a mandatory feast, you know, for the males of Israel, where this was one of the three that they were all supposed to come to Jerusalem for. How easy is it to travel now? You know, think if we had to go halfway across the country and once a year or three times a year we had to all meet in Oklahoma or something like that. You know, it's be something you're like, you gotta save for, you gotta plot your gas, where we're gonna stay, how's this gonna be? And oh, make sure you take your sacrifice with you. You know, how's it and you gotta keep it pure, you gotta keep it right, you gotta make sure it doesn't have any blemish, it doesn't get hurt along the way. So, so many of them would just buy it when they got there, you know, because you have to feed it and you have to sleep with a goat the whole time, or you know, goat sheep or doves whatever, you know, like oxen. And so they would buy them when they got there. These would be pre-approved and no blemishes. You didn't have to worry about it, so you would pay a fee. And there's always a service fee, you know, for that convenience. And so you had that going on. And at lists there was the changers, the sellers, uh, the ones who did uh, doves and sheeps and oxen, and apparently goats when I randomly thrown it. in. Uh, but uh, this is a, a Passover. It took a lot to travel there. And so you can see this is a need, but the problem is that it's on the inside. So imagine that. Changers and sellers, that could be quietly done, I guess, but there is a lot of clinking of coins as you're handing it back and forth. Uh, they didn't have bills, you know, so that's not a quiet currency. You know, it's a pocket full of change. You always knew the kids had money because they were over there you know, shake. Oh, I got a pocket of pennies, you know. They're proud of it and playing with it. You know, they got their tooth fairy money, you know, spinning it around. It makes noise. Drop it. You know, it clangs about. Kind of fiddle with a coin sometimes. At certain times at at work, I'm playing with trying to work on a magic move or whatever, and that means I drop it a lot. And so it makes noise, and everybody's kind of like, what are you doing over there? Being weird. (laughs) Playing with a coin. And so, you know, it it makes noise. You know, so that's a sound that's going on. But then you also have a lamb, oxen, and the birds. That makes a lot of noise makes a lot of smell, not very holy. Now, the temple had multiple parts. If you start in the center, we start at the Holy of Holies. That's where the Ark of the Covenant was. And you had to go through the veil to get there. One person, one time a year, goes behind there in the Day of Atonement to offer the blood. And then you had the holy place. Outside there, we had the showbread. And you had the incense, candelabra, uh, that, that is in there. And that had to be tended to 2 daily, and they, and they drew that, and we saw that John the Baptist's dad, you know, was in there and, and doing his turn. But very few get in there, you know, so when the priest would get drawn, they would get into that. Outside of that, that little square, there's a bigger rectangle, and that was called the Court of Priests. And that's where the, the altar was and the brazen labor. And that's where the priest did that ministering for you. You, know, you might meet them at the gate, and then they would go and offer the sacrifice and perform the ritual, and they would move back and talk to you. You weren't allowed in there. You know, it's just the priests in that area. Outside of that, what was called the court of Israel. That's where Israel could be, but mainly the Israel men. That's where they could get next to it. Outside that ring was the, called the court of women, and that's where the Jewish women could go, and that was as close as they could get. So they could approach, and then the men could go a little bit closer, then the priest went closer, and then the high priest could go all the way on the inside. But outside the court of women was called the court of the Gentiles, and that's where a Jew or a Gentile proselyte there's your $10 word for the day, uh, someone who's converted into Judaism... Uh, from a Gentile nation, that's where they could go and worship. And so they're on the outside, and it was probably the bigger area uh, that was outside the, the temple, then the court of women, uh, then the court of Israel, then the court of priests, and then the holy place, and the holy of holies. You know, so it's, it's a progress to get in, and it's the closest that the Gentiles could get was the court of the Gentiles way on the outskirts there. This is the area where they were doing all this, where the changing of money was going on, where the animals were being sold and bought or changed or interchanged. or Maybe you brought one that got scratched along the way, you had to exchange it for another one. So this was kind of a common area. It was said that the Jews during that time, and I think we might have another story somewhere else that comments on this, but they were using it for a shortcut. Like if you're trying to get someplace and the temple's in between you in there, well, you know, instead of just going all the way around it on the 465 around the temple area, cut inside, you know, a little bit, get into the court of Gentiles and you could, cut on through there and cut some steps off and so people are just using it like a highway to walk through just just cutting right on through that's not that's not very sacred that's not very set apart except animal stalls you know people just traveling through all the other people getting into the inner area they're running through but this is as close as the gentiles could get this is their church you know that they have and you've got animal stalls, you've got animal smells. It's not quiet, it's not solemn, it's not a place to go and reflect, it's not a place where you can really sit down and worship your Lord when someone's saying, Excuse me, excuse me, I'm trying to get through on the other side. And, and these guys are over here, you know, $10, $10 for a sheep, $10 for a sheep, $10 for whatever it is. It's like not a very worshipful atmosphere. You've know, if you got all this buying and selling and trading, it's like a marketplace in there. Is that how God intended it? When He wrote it all out, is that what they wanted? Is this the experience when God said, I want you to come and this three times a year, and here's one where you're going to go, and I want you to come get as close as you can and do this spot and stay in your area and have this experience. Are you it with a good experience if that's your experience? No. No, Jesus is about to change all this, and we know from the woman at the well and all, he's like, there's coming a time and a place where it's not going to be just at the temple. You know, two or more gather, we can gather in his name. We're taking advantage of that here and now. We're gathered in his name. We're not having to go to Jerusalem. We don't have to plot a flight to get there and to go and see and get to that place. We summon together by the assembling of ourselves together. He says he's in our midst while we're here. So he's about to change all that, but man, it's such a long way from its origin. Do you think the Jews in the wilderness, when they had uh, the precursor to the temple and they had the tabernacle, when they would see the pillar of fire stop and then they had erect uh, the tabernacle around it, do you think that they were selling animals within that outer court for the Gentiles? I don't think so. <laughs> I think there was a reverence and a fear because they'd seen him part the water. But they knew all these things. They didn't actually have all these outer things, but I'm sure there was a buffer zone of reverence you know, uh, back then. And so no. No, it's come such a far away from its origin, you know, how they set it all up. When you read back when Solomon is making all those sacrifices, when they're dedicating the temple proper, you know, that they're doing all this It was such a time of reverence and they sang and they danced and they approach one step at a time. You know, think about when David, you know, brings it into the tabernacle, into the city, how he danced and he did all these different things and stopped and made all these sacrifices. It was a time of thoughtfulness, you know, when they went through it. Now it's just a marketplace. It would be shocking. I know I've thought of that often with our founding fathers. I'm like, what would George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, these guys think if they came and they saw uh, the sham that's going on in our country today, you know, how far would it be? I just recently read a book on 1776. There was a lot of shooting going on back then for people who didn't comply and didn't follow to the Constitution. So we've come a long way, baby, and it's not all good. So let alone you have the Holy Lord who established these things. So yeah, it's the things that are going on in the temple. So verse 15. And when he had made a scourge of small cords, he drove them all out of the temple. And the sheep and the oxen poured out uh, the changers money. And he overthrew the tables. And he said unto them that sold doves, take these things hence. Make not my father's house and house of merchandise. And his disciples remembered that it was written, the zeal of thine house has eaten me up. Well, then you have a, a lot of people kind of paint this of Jesus just flying off in a fit of rage. Is he upset? Yeah, there's no doubt he's upset. But it's not a fit of rage. We are, uh, one of the verses I remember really meditating early on in my 20s was about a proverb about it that's a man that is stronger that can control himself. Versus a man who can take a whole city. You know, and I would think, man, a guy who's a warrior to be able to go in and overthrow a city, that would be some kind of warrior. And and the Bible says, no, a man who control his anger, a man who can keep himself from flying off the handle, that self-control, he says, I see that as more strength than a man who could go in and overtake a city. So I've tried to meditate on that. Do I think Jesus would then violate that? No. But we know this. Jesus is Righteous. And he is holy. And when we read verses about him coming down and establishing his kingdom, this says he rules with a rod of iron. You know, he's, he's strict. He holds to it. And what he says goes. You know, there's no lulling things around. You know, we kind of misrepresented a lot of things, making him soft and easy. And, oh, he's okay with it. He excuses it. He didn't strike me down with lightning last time I did it. You no, know, this isn't rage. This isn't something that boils up and he's just like, blows flows off the handle. He stops and makes a scourge. He's a craftsman. What's in the scourge? Some talked about being able to use the elements that were around there, probably hay and things, and then build like a lightweight one. I don't know if they're trying to make it like he was easy, just like going through the motions. Or, I don't know. It says he built a scourge. I don't know what all he used to do it, but he makes I think it's a scourge. And then he systematically drives them out. He has a plot and a plan, so it's not just like, oh, he throws off. I think he goes there with this purpose. All right. I'm putting myself on the scene. I've called myself out. I, I've done my first miracle there, the miracle of the water to wine. And now I'm going to go and say, I'm going to show my zeal for the temple. I'm now announcing myself to all the spiritual leaders. I go right to the heart of it, and I'm cutting out all this garbage that's going on that shouldn't be here. So imagine that. He drives out all the animals. He drives out the money changers. He's flipping over all the coins. And so there's there's a time there of chaos. And I think it also paints the picture, you know, when they always kind of paint the dainty Jesus, you know, with all the hair and flowing around all frail. I get a picture of this as a carpenter where people are like, whoa, you know, he just ran out a bunch of people. There were things called temple guards that were armed and everything that couldn't stop this guy. Because, you know, when you have a holy, righteous anger that comes down, but he has that, you know, there's something where you know that you are guilty, and the Bible says the guilty flee, you know, so that they're running out in front of him, so they know that they're doing wrong. But then how imagine how quiet it was when that got done, and he's probably like, this is more like it. You know, They've turned it over for the court of the Gentiles to, to be able to stop and worship at least for a day. It's not him flying off the handle. This is a righteous purge. This is God coming down and making things right. The book of Revelation does have an interesting line that's kind of an oxymoron in a sense or a paradox at least that says, beware the wrath of the lamb, those vicious lambs with their fangs and their sharp teeth. No, the lamb doesn't have that, but our lamb's a lion the line of the tribe of Judah. He is the lamb that was sacrificed, but he's also coming back as a conquering king. He's not someone to be messed with. And we're getting a little glimpse of that. If you have notes in your margin or you have like certain sections that are to kind of categorized to help you find these portions, you probably have something like, so mine has Christ cleanses the temple. In my margin, that's kind of, it's little heading there to help me out. You know, Something like that, cleansing the temple. See, cleansing of the temple is a righteous act. When you're cleaning up that which is dirty. He's making a point. And his disciples get it. When they see this, they're like, oh, this reminds us of what the Bible says about Messiah. So hold your spot here and turn to Psalm 69. Psalm 69 and verse 9. Psalm 69, 9 says, For the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up, and the reproaches of men that reproach thee are fallen upon me. That's what John tells us. He says, "He goes. This is where our mind went. That when Messiah comes, that he would have a zeal for the Lord's house. It's eaten him up to the point where he can't just sit on the sideline. He has to do something about it, and he does. Look at verse eight. And become a stranger unto my brethren, and an alien unto my mother's children. If you were here on Wednesdays when we covered Psalm sixty nine, this covers Jesus' childhood, from his childhood. I like just Jesus' life from his childhood up until his crucifixion." This is a very eye-opening psalm that goes through and talks about what it was like to be the Son of God and to not sin. To be born in a culture to where infidelity of people who had children out of wedlock, you know, they had colorful names that, that apply, and, and him to be falsely charged of that, his mother to be falsely charged of that. They talk about he was a song to the drunkers that the whole town drunks were making fun of you, his brothers and sisters made fun of you, all the kids at school made fun of you, because you were seen as this from those origins and so it's a very kind of sad and depressing psalm it ends towards the end where he talks about vinegar and gall. It ends with his crucifixion this points to the right place that this is him this is about the savior and that yes he has these things that when he was a child uh, that happened and that he's going to go to the cross but right here in the middle he he's known for his zeal for the temple and we've just come past this where he parts with his mom and his brethren and he leaves them in Capernaum and he's gone on to Jerusalem to do these things. And so and he's become a stranger to them because he's now announced his public ministry and the Jesus that was at home taking care of things because Joseph was gone is now the Jesus who is proclaiming his ministry that he is Messiah. And his brethren are like, who is this? You know, they're siding with the ones that were talking about his brothers and his sister. Who does he think he is? Where do you get all this education? You know, they're embarrassed by him until the resurrection. And so we get a little bit of that context in Psalm 69 as well. If you haven't read that, I encourage you to go back and, and to read it. They're right. He is fulfilling scripture. Let's go back to uh, John 2. Go to verse 17 again. I, I like that John gives us this commentary as he's going. And his disciples remembered that it was written, The zeal of thine house hath eaten me up it's another good confirmation for them we thought he was the messiah he's shown us the messiah we've seen a miracle boy he does have a zeal for the temple you know so they you know they're discussing as they're walking along the different prophecies that they knew about messiah and his first coming like we would be mentioned in matthew 24 but there's earthquakes in diverse places like fukushima yesterday had some seven pointers and all around new zealand and australia have had tidal wave warnings all this week you know and so all those prophecy watchers about uh, his second coming are watching out for all these signs and things that are going on they were for his first coming and they're like well you know, he had to have a zeal for the house and like man this is good timing remember john the baptist what he said and remember about when his dad was announced by an angel how he couldn't talk you know so they're putting all these pieces together and uh, they're building up faith along with building our faith alright so verse 18 and then answered the Jews and said unto him what sign showest thou unto us seeing thou that these doest these things he got their attention so the authority figures come along and they're like hey what's going on we just watched everybody go running out of the temple and they're uh, trying to gather what they had and keeping their animals together and keeping their coins and there's a lot of chaos going on and the only guy left in there is Jesus with his scourge what right are you a Pharisee which one did you study under Are you a Sadducee? Are you one of the scribes? He's like, no, no. Who are you? By what authority do you do these things? Give us a sign. If you can't tell us what school you went to, you can't give us the right diplomas. Give us a sign then to show that you say you're sent from God. Show us a sign that you were sent from God. He's like, okay, I'll give you one. Verse 19, and Jesus answered and said unto them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then said the Jews, Forty and six years was the temple and building, and that will rear it up in three days. But he spake of the temple of his body. Again, John gives us another commentary here to let us know in case we get trapped in the Pharisees trap. Oh, he's going to destroy that temple and he'll build it up? That was a big stone building. Now He's talking about his crucifixion. Talk about a sign. He gives him a sign and a prophecy all in one, "Destroy this temple." And I'm sure when he did it when you talk and you're public speaking, he, was, "Destroy this temple." in three days, it's something like that gestured to his body. In three days I will raise it up." And they missed the mark. But John says, "No, we know what he's talking about after the fact. So man. And think about how literally they tried to do that. He didn't just say, "Kill this body." He says, "Destroy this temple." Isaiah 52, verse 14 says, His visage was so marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. They literally almost whipped him in pieces. Cat of nine tails. Talk about a scourge. He knew about scourges. He was going to know about scourges, right? They literally flogged in two part where his entrails were hanging out. You know, that he was... Most people died at that point, you know, just from the shock alone, let alone to carry your cross, to be crucified, to be nailed, and to have a spear thrust through your side, and the beating on the head and plucking out his beard and all that. So his visage was so marred more than any other man, you could hardly look at him and recognize who he was. They'd beaten him to a pulp so badly. It was a bloody, gory mess. Rome was good at death. They were good at torture. And they put that upon him. So yeah, they tried to destroy his body. Because it's satanic, right? He says, I'll raise it up again. <laughs> I mean, we're talking about devastation to the human body. And he's like, three days. We would still be like, no, that's too far. No, but he rose again, victorious from the grave. And it says in uh, verse 21, it says, but he spake of them of the temple, his body. And when therefore he was risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this unto them. And they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus has said. So now he's giving his commentary again. He says, now remember, we're going all the way back in ministry, that Jesus said this early on, the first time he went to the temple. He turned on over those tables, and he told the Pharisees then, destroy this body in three days. This chapter starts out with three days, right? And we looked at that last week with the, the miracle of the wine. But again, you know, something's about to happen. He said, three days, I'll raise it up again. And They tried to destroy him, and they said, that reminds us of the scriptures. This tells us that the whole time that they're meditating and thinking all these things, what scriptures might they be thinking about? We we think uh, Psalm 16. Let's turn to that one real quick. Psalm 16. Because again, we're getting commentary by John, not as it's happening, but after the fact, writing it for us so that we might believe. So I appreciate that he gives us these little thoughts and these little insights. So Psalm 16 and verse 10 says, Thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thy holy one to see corruption. He's not rotten yet. He doesn't have all that. He's like, This is the scripture that their mind goes to, you know, that uh, they didn't leave him in the grave. They didn't leave him in in hell. Sheol didn't see corruption. He raised again. He was raised on that third day. And so, yeah, they begin meditating on the scripture. When all did he say this? We know that Jesus is going to use other references like Jonas and, and other things. And their mind is pulling these scriptures together. And he is giving us this hint, just like he does in the book of Revelation. I'm telling you things about Jesus' life and his ministry. And I am pointing out things in the Old Testament, verses that you can meditate on to show that he is fulfilling these things. So here, John is using the same pattern. I'm writing the narrative, driving you to the rest of the text. You read this book, but you don't read it by itself. You read it in the context of all the rest of the Bible. Jesus is the one who fulfills these scriptures. And so he's building that case for us. Back to John. We'll finish out the chapter, verse 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover and the feast days, many believed in his name, and when they saw the miracles which he did, verse 24, and Jesus did not commit himself unto them, because he knew all men, and needed not that any should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. He knew what was in men's heart. It says he did many miracles. Well, one, he announces himself, he turns over all these tables, uh, big in, people begin to follow him. Who is this guy? You know, Peter and the disciples are doing their, their job. This is Jesus. This is Messiah. This is the Savior. This is the one from Nazareth. He is fulfilling scriptures. Let us tell you about what he did at the wedding that we were just at. And then he does other miracles. It says right here in uh, verse 22 that he does other things. And John already told us at the end, he goes, if I wrote down everything that he did, there's not enough paper and not enough books to be able to have the world contain it. He did so much. And so he's very specific in what he includes for us. We have other verses that say the Jews seek for a sign and these things, and when we see that right here. They're asking for the sign. Jesus now then goes and performs miracles, and we know that they spend the rest of his ministry trying to kill him even though he's done these things. If you believe by a sign, if you believe by something you saw, you can get tricked into disbelieving as easy as you believe. Ooh, I saw something. I thought it was it. And you kind of get on the bandwagon for a while, and then you're like, Oh, you know, they get around to like, oh, you're with him. No, no, no. I think that that was fake. And, and you know, I knew a guy that did this once. And then you're like, oh, okay, now you start believing, disbelieving. You know, you could lose it just as easy. And Jesus knows this. That people are fickle. You know, that people are all there, and you know, it's like something's going on. It's a Passover. The, the people are thinking about Messiah being here, and oh, they get caught up in the zeal, and they get caught up in the crowd, you know, of what's going on. And then they go home and think about it, and like, yeah, not so much anymore. This is probably the same crowd in three years that are saying, "Crucify him." Probably the same group of people. But the disciples didn't quit. They plow on. They know the difference. And I'm sure it's not everyone in the crowd, but probably most. Because he tells us broad is the way that leads to destruction, but narrow is the way that leads to life, and few there be that find it. Many come alongside for a minute, and then they're like, wow, we still got to keep doing this. You haven't run in the kingdom yet. Yeah, it's going to be this way for a while. So they leave. They get tired. This is too long. I I thought it was going to be instant. Come on. It's like I read a whole thing about uh, when the left behind books were super popular. You know how people got on board and read them, are all zealous for us, and now they're atheists because it didn't happen. Well, we were ready for it to happen within that our lifetime, or within a few weeks. Or hey, come on, come on, when are these things going to go? And all of a sudden, they're on the bagwagon, wagon. Now they've jumped off and they've gone the other way. Some people you know come alongside and help for a little bit, and then turn around and attack them. Said so they were with him, then they turn around and attack him and attack the disciples for what they're doing, you know, because things didn't happen on their time frame. I'll tell you what, something. There's a secret. God doesn't work on our timetable. <laughs> he doesn't do things the way we want him to. That's why we always say he's not a tame lion, you know, but he's good. We can't control him. We don't make him do what we want him to do, but he's good. Some are zealous for a little while. They, they, they flame up. You know, they're a hot fire for a second, and then they're asleep, and you can't find them anymore. The Bible goes on and talks about that. There's those that were with us, you know, but where are they now? You know, that they used to be here, and they quit. It got too long, got too tiresome, got too cumbersome, got cost too much, took too long, was too slow. But the disciples and those true believers keep marching forward. They keep going on. They're not a flash in the pan. Uh, Jesus sums it up in the parable of the seed. There's some that spring up quick, you know, and then they burn away, and there's some that... Look all bright and fluffy for a while, you know they never produce any fruit. But there are those ones that dig down deep and they get tap into that living water, and that they do produce fruit, and it keeps going—some hundred, some a thousand fold. You know it keeps going. He's encouraging us to be that way. There's those that just don't give up. Winston Churchill said, "They do not flag, they do not fail." I think we'll claim that here. We're we're not going to get tired and and just whip away quickly. We're not going to fail. We're going to keep at the stuff. We're going to keep going. We're not going to be fly by night. So I'd say endurance is one of the things that we want to do. We don't want to be flashing the pans. We're in for the long haul with Jesus Christ. We're going to trust him or we're going to trust his timing. So is there anything else here? We've seen some pretty fantastic things in the Gospel of John so far. Verse 23, it says, when he believed in his name, when he saw the miracles that he did, that there are many other miracles that we're not told about. And that immediately makes me think. Well, what were they? <laughs> Was it all just healing miracles? What? Did he do some great fantastic things? But what about he did during those days? We don't know. But we know that John had a lot that he could have said. So then he's like, sits down, pen to paper, and he's like, "I'll talk about him purging the temple." So then that makes me think, why? Why did he pick that one? He has. A lot could have been a whole big conversation deeper with the Pharisees. He could have talked about all these miracles that he did and then the encounter with the Pharisees and the whole hard hearts. But he's like, no, I'm going to tell you about him cleansing the temple. So that makes us have to stand back and look at that. Why does he tell us that? Why has John included this? He's very specific in what he tells us. So let's pull back. Let's look at the whole of chapter two. So we start out with the wedding, water to wine. And last week we talked about Oh, this is like conversion, that we're that cold water pot made of stone, dead water. And he performs a miracle in our lives. He gives us wine, which is, represents the spirit, which represents joy. Uh, we talk about in the Jewish system. Uh, so it's a, it's, a, it's a picture of conversion, right? That he's taken something that the law can't purify because those pots were set aside for purification. The law can't do it. But when Jesus comes and he enters and he does the miracle in our life and he converts us, he takes us from death to life. He takes us from dead person to live person, from sinner to saint. You know, he does that. It's a story of conversion in the first one. Amen. Law can't do it. You can't do it. You can't clean up. You can't stop smoking, stop cussing. And then I'll come to church and then I'll get right. Let me be consistent in church for a while. Let me, let me give a little bit. Let me do this. Let me join Habitat for Humanity. Let me do all these different things. Then maybe I'll be worthy and Christ will save me. No, you can't come that way. You come just as you are. You can't clean yourself up enough. Christ does the converting. Christ does the saving. You don't do the saving. He gets all the credit. So this is that. It's stone pots, left to the law, not working. Christ is like it up. That was the miracle, converts it into wine. With the helps, maybe a few servants. Some of us come to Christ. Help a few servants who witness. They're in on the inside a little bit. They get a, they've been praying for you. Maybe you've been a part of that chain of grace with someone else where you've witnessed to them and you've written them the letter and you've given them the tracker. Maybe you're the one that gets to be there to gather the fruit when they repent and trust in, in the Savior. He does all the saving, though, but watch it happen. God has saved someone else. We are in on the inside and we have a joy that is unspeakable, full of joy, just like them because we know that someone has been converted for, for Christ. And we get to witness that miracle take place in front of us. That is an awesome thing to be a part of this gentle, kind Savior who converts lost sinners with this wonderful first miracle in our lives that takes our sin and removes us and changes us from being a lost enemy of God and changes us into a son or daughter of God, adopts us into his family, he converts us, he changes us, and he, and he makes us into these spiritual creatures, takes us that are dead and makes us alive, changes the sinner into a saint. The same gentle Savior loves us Loves us. Saves us where we are. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, right? And he loves us. And he wants what's best for us. And he wants us to be useful in his hand. Ephesians 2 tells us that he has a work before ordained for us. He has a plan for you and me in his ministry. We convert us. And we have a joy and a feasting in that moment. That joy of your salvation. Then our loving Savior rolls up his sleeves starts to work on us. He gets that scourge together in his hand. And he says, let's begin the cleansing. Because there's stuff in our life that we can't get rid of. It's going to take the holy God of Israel to come in and cleanse our temple. What have we brought in? in What have we gotten into by the time we came to him? What are those things that have its claws in so much that it's going to take a holy act of God to drive them out for us, to change us from who we were and, and to who he wants us to be? We call it Sanctification. It's this cleansing. He drives things out. He comes in and begins naming things and saying what it is. And sometimes it's upsetting. He has to turn it over and we see ourselves who we truly are. And that he would die for me, a sinner, that he would still take me in that state and he converted me to his Satan And he's working on that in my life. That he would do this. And sometimes it's noisy. And sometimes it's hard. And sometimes it feels like chastisement. It feels like you know that love of a parent who has to whip us where we are to let us see it for what it is. But no, he wants to expose it. He calls it what it is. And he says, this is what's not right. It's not what I have planned for you this is not what we have in our designs for it he wants to drive it out he is righteous and he is cleansing our lives he is working in our lives in this way he is waging war in our sin because he wants to sanctify us he wants us to be usable tool in his hand so he does the hard work he wants to make us a holy temple so he says i'm going to drive those things out Those things that you've made excuses for and you thought that they were okay and you let them creep in a little bit closer and a little bit closer and you thought that I was okay with it because I hadn't struck you dead or lightning hadn't struck you. I was just patient and long-suffering. But now it's your mind. Let's begin the work. It begins working. Dave showed a video at RU. God using that chisel on you. going to chisel those things away. Make you more into his image. So he's molding us into his image. It's painful. Sometimes it's shocking always convicting when he puts his finger on something new when he exposes something that we thought he didn't know about he's like i've always known there it is let me tell you what it is because he's righteous and he is holy he wants what's best for us he's a loving parent in that sense so he does the hard work now he did all this at the temple and then he left do you think the next day they all stayed out i don't we know that later the other Gospels say that uh, he comes back to Jerusalem, he does it all again. Because you know, they all just came right back and did what they were doing. Let me just admit this to you. Brian does that too. He'll drive some things out. He'll expose it and I'll confess it. But over time I'll let my guard down. They creep right back in. And he has to come back again. It's like, here we go. <laughs> I love him for it. I'm glad he's not done working with me. I'm glad he's the Savior. Who's continuing to save and to mold us and to make us in his image that he's not completed. But he has more planned for me. If I would just get out of his way and listen and obey. He does it all for our good. For his glory. That he would transform us into the image of his dear son. So let's just keep our heads up about letting things creep back in. Let's not make excuses for it and say, well, he's a louder and that's not too bad I and mean, he understands. No. Let's see it as he sees it. As the righteous judge of the universe does. So he converts us, John gives us that, and then he shows us the cleansing that comes thereafter. I think he has purpose in all this as he lays it all down. I think this is why a book we go to when we first believe is showing us who our Savior is. And here we are years later going through it again, and we're like, there's so much more to him. There's so much more that's going on in this text, and I'm glad for it. I'm glad that this is something we could say of our Savior, that in the early days he's working on us, and he's not done working on us. And I'm thankful for that. That we have a God who saves. And we have a God who continues to save us. And that one day we will be glorified and that work will be done. Hallelujah. I hope you recognize me. <laughs> I'm trying to, trying to be molded to his image more like it now so it's not so shocking. What? This is you. I'm glad we have a saving God. And I'm glad they chose a carpenter. as That profession. Because that was their job. It wasn't so much creating things. But fixing that which is broken. Glad we have that tender hand. One who's tempted always like we are, yet without sin, holy and righteous, and willing to work with us.